Welcome back. Thank you, everyone. Uh, it is my privilege to welcome our next speaker, Anthony Barker, who is Director of Pensions at Santander UK, where he's responsible for the assets and liabilities of the bank's £10 billion pension arrangements. With a degree in uh, banking and finance, Anthony trained as an actuary at various large consulting firms and has won many awards not only for himself but for his clients as well. Anthony was the actuarial profession's principal examiner in investments for 15 years. So if you're still scarred by your investment fellowship paper, you're welcome to have a quiet word with Anthony uh, after the session. We have arranged extra security for him, however. Anthony is an avid listener um, of TED Talks and spends a lot of time analyzing popular culture. And this is not in his spare time. It's actually part of his job. Um, he's truly a long-term and non-traditional thinker, judging by the nature of investments which Anthony has made, ranging from marinas and ports to telephone masts in Nigeria. Welcome to our seminar in Africa, um, and please spread the word that the continent is not just the empty area anymore. Um, he will be discussing where future value lies with us today. Thank you. Thank you, and good afternoon, and um, given that we're already running late, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm impressed so many of you actually came back from coffee. Given the geopolitical outcome at the moment, whichever country you're in, the economics, most people have a feeling the world looks mostly like this. But, and, and actually, there's, there's just nothing to be won. You know, there's, there's no future in anything that's been done. Everybody's got a problem. Everybody's looking at the dark side of it. And... You know, in this sort of environment, you know, the only people who seem to be making a success of life are the rats. Um, and actually, I was delighted to find this in The Citizen. That, uh, you know, and we can actually go home now, because if this genuinely is the solution, this number works, then you know, th there's nothing more to say. In fact, if this doesn't work and you love diversification, there are three pages of adverts in The Citizen covering alternative investments. What I perhaps want a slightly more serious point is, is to start with this and the sort of, as I said, genuinely long term. I mean, I, I represent a pension fund. It's got liabilities that will go out for 50 years or more. And the world is going to change a lot in that time. I, mean, I did a speech last night and somebody asked me a question about longevity. And I said, you know, you've got to remember that it was only 100 years ago that different blood types were identified. It was only 50 years ago that the first heart surgery was, was performed by Christian Barnard. Are you really trying to tell me that in the next 50 years we're not going to develop stem cell technology for brain tissue and then ultimately discover immortality? But yeah, this is a fascinating slide because it, you know, it, if you just compare these two illustrations of New York's Easter Parade, you know, 1900, the horse was everything. Everybody had a horse. You know, it, it, you know, it was your main source of transport. It worked on your farmstead. You know, it was very, very reliable. Merely 13 years on, you know, last session closed on the concept of possibly driverless cars. This is certainly a horseless street. But the horses haven't disappeared. They're just not there. So what's happened to the horse? And I think the horse, what ultimately came was the first stranded asset. Yeah, the idea of something that we were all took for granted, 
It was a resource that we, everybody owned. There was convention in, in having it. Everybody wanted one. Everybody maybe had several, but things changed. Now, I, I, I grew up in the, the, in the north of England. My, 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 my grandparents were, were miners, and this photograph was probably taken somewhere around the sort of turn, turn, turn of the century. So it's, it's about 120, 130 year, year, years old. These are the lads down the mines. At that time, they thought, again, coal was the big supplier of energy. You know, nobody had heard of solar or wind farms or, or, or water power. You know, everybody relied on coal. Nobody really appreciated any of the issues to do with sort of health and welfare and everything. They thought coal was the future. Coal would provide a living for them. It would provide a living for their children. It would supply the village, the town, the city. You know, everybody would rely on coal. Well, as we know, that's not going to happen. And why, do, why, why, why is it almost a relevant illustration? Well, because if you look at latest estimates of oil stocks around the world, they reckon it's probably about 100, 100 120 years of supply left. And so, you know, whereas these people thought oil was the future, you know, all those conversations that have been recently had, you know, at OPEC as to, you know, how much we're going to have supply and everything, how much oil is important, that $50 is the new 100, maybe, you know, the future's not quite that long for them. And why, what happens with, why does something become a stranded asset? Well, I think the reasons are fairly obvious, and, you know, and we list, list them there. I mean, technology is the great disruptor, as we know. And, you know, in, in energy, it looks now like solar will ultimately become the dominant power. It, solar panels are just becoming so ridiculously cheap. And, and it would be possible, you know, if we were ever to get geopolitical consensus to, to put a solar farm on the Sahara Desert and power the world. Yeah, we will never get geopolitical consensus, but the theory is there and, and, it, and it would be cost effective. You know, what was the other reasons? Well, obviously environmental. You know, we often talk about the ESG impacts on things. And, you know, coal just fell out, fell out of favor. You know, there were health issues. There were all sorts of issues. You know, the resource change. New people made new discoveries. You know, I mean, South Africa clearly, again, built itself on a commodity. You know, you diversified into financial services. You only have to look around Joburg now. There's big retail centers. And the guys on the platform before were talking about, you know, their, their best stock picks going forward. There is a new consumer coming through, and the, this new consumer wants new things and different things and a different way of getting it. Litigation, you know, again, can be both a sort of, you know, actually can be now be a source of income. You know, pension funds are sponsoring litigation costs as much as they are anything else. But perhaps the crucial thing is what's the evolving social norm is conduct. You know, these guys who were mining coal back at the turn of the previous century, it was the social norm. Everybody worked in coal. Everyone was always going to work in coal. You know, looking back, you can say well, they were naive. And I, I was regaling somebody, you know, yesterday that, you know, like Luke Hugh, I, you know, I've been a consultant in this industry for 20, 25 years. And, you know, the best that can be said about the advice I was giving out in the 80s and 90s was it was no worse than anybody else's doesn't mean it was necessarily any good, and it probably hasn't stood the test of time. But why, do, why does it matter? You know, should we be worrying about resources, technology, uh, and everything? I, I think the perfect interaction of these um, is Ellen MacArthur's round-the-world trip. And I have the privilege of being Ellen MacArthur's landlord now. As you referred to, we bought a portfolio of marinas, and one of them was Ellen MacArthur's moorings. And, and when she did her round-the-world trip, 
you know, she had to consider everything down in finite detail, you know, because actually Amazon Prime apparently is not available somewhere off the Cape of Good Hope. Who knew? In fact, ironically, through most of her journey across the oceans, the closest people to her were the guys in the International Space Station. I mean, that just gives you an indication of how remote she was, how much she was on her own, how much she had to plan, and therefore controlling resources and what she did with resources, husbanding resources, was good. And then how do you actually use technology to use those resources efficiently? And that perhaps starts to give you an indication of some of the themes that we've been thinking about as a pension fund. You know, we've been taking an ultra-long-term view. We've got to invest this money for quite some time. Because this is the Santander pension problem, that, you know, we have cash flows. The schemes have been closed for about 14 years now, but the, the, the potential pension payouts go out until about 2080. You know, we had some people who were sort of only about 18 when the schemes were closed. You know, in theory, they could quite easily live another 50, 60 years. They could have dependents and everything. And we know things like inflation will make those numbers bigger in future. We know longevity and, you know, bank longevity is really quite interesting. It will make the payouts for longer. The thing we've often tried to ignore, though, actually, is the discount rate. You know, when all the talk at the moment is of interest rates and one of the panellists was asked for their view on, on rates, actually we found it just confuses the problem. Because what we did in producing this chart was we took the discounting off. And we explained to the bank's board that long before my time, long before their time, they had promised 26 billion of future pension promises. And the cost of 26 billion of pension promises was 26 billion. You know, all right, it was going to be paid out over 50, 60 years, but the number was still 26 billion. And as of today, or when I certainly produced this chart, I only had about 8 billion. And it was great because it crystallized that bank's, well, that C-suite's thinking as to, well, we're not going to write a check for the difference. So actually, the only thing we've got now is to invest our way out of it. And, and this is a bank who is subject to all sorts of regulations, an awful lot of ultra-conservatism now. It really did have to change their mindset. You know, you're not going to get that sort of a return with Treasury plus quarter of a, quarter of a percent. You know, we're going to have to do something very, very different. And the other problem is, is that number doesn't change. Because actually, we get to see, we get, you know, we, we produce a lot of regular reports. And yeah, on some days, the numbers look great. My accounting number is very, very positive. The funding level's been going up. But you know, on lots of other times, simply because of a change in the discount rate, the funding level falls through the floor. And there's not much I can do about it. You know? um, I mean, it's been found out that investment banks cannot persistently manipulate bond markets. Um, you know. Liable they can do for a few years, exchange rates maybe, but uh, the, the long, end of, long end of the treasury market they, they, they struggle with. So I'm, I'm always going to have to live with interest rate, this interest rate environment. So this is my problem, is actually do I listen to the scheme actuaries who give me details about what implied inflation is, or basically do I just ignore it? Uh, and, uh, and actually what this, this, this top chart here is... You know, the graph, which is the blue graph, is telling me what, what apparently break even inflation is implied by the difference between long dated conventional and inflation linked gilts in the UK market. And the red line is what it's actually been. And it's quite clear to me that 
the, the implied inflation is actually no indicator of, of what the rate's going to be. Similarly, I can see that it, you know, it seems to be just becoming down and down and down. So, you know, I'm looking now and saying I'm just going to have to accept I'm in a low long-term interest rate environment and a low inflation environment, which means I'm probably going to be in a low nominal return environment, which starts to make me think there's actually, it's not just in terms of strategy what I'm going to do, there's an issue about how I'm going to do it. Because at the time when markets are returning sort of double-digit returns, Nobody really worries too much about whether the hedge fund guys or the asset managers are getting 2% on their fees. But if our return series is only in about 4 5%, paying 2% to the manager, that's a lot of pensions. And so, yeah, this market's going to go all over the place, but it's not necessarily going to help me. So this is about the only I think I've only got two slides with lots of words on, and this one, you know, you can read for yourself. But it... It's the crucial thing. You know, the base theory is pretty easy to get, to get over to everyone. You know, we've got liabilities. It's the only reason we've got assets. It's the raison d'etre. We need to try and outperform them if we're going to generate the covering the deficit from investment return. We're after sort of beta, got as cheaply as possible, and then active outperformance. And what's happened as we've kind of compressed nominal returns is actually the alpha becomes disproportionately more important. You know, achieving a 1% gain in a 5% market, huge, you know, 20% increase in your, in, in, in your returns. And the trouble is, as anyone involved in manager selection will know, it's very, very hard to achieve. This, I actually put, the, put, put this um, presentation together the first time before, um, you know, the, the, the death of Ali. But, you know, the point is actually quite a good one. It's, it's a truism that you cannot achieve more returns without taking risk. It's equally a truism that simply taking more risk doesn't justify return. However, there are quite clearly rewarded risks. And in the Santander scheme, we were very clear to point out to the bank's board that it was possible to evolve a strategy where we de-risked the unrewarded risks, the rates, the inflation, longevity, and focus the risk budget on return-seeking assets. And actually, not only just focusing on return-seeking assets, but actually to get further into private markets. And the, and the, and the scheme at the moment is about 35% in real assets and, and, and private markets, far higher than most um, pension schemes. It looks more like an endowment. And somebody made a comment about Africa. I mean, I mean Africa, I think um, we, we have probably about 3 to 4% of the total fund in African investments. We think we're underweight. You know, we, we, we just look at the numbers and say, well, 12% of the, the, the population is in this country. They're all wanting, you know, instant sophistication. They want Amazon.com, and they're going to get it, and they're going to get it very, very quickly. So it's not so much that we're, we're underweight. It's just everybody else in the world is very, very underweight. The trouble is that, you know, when you did your theory, and I apologize for all of you that I did put through the exams, um, especially those that had to just sit the exams several times, um, it was a good exam, though, and I appreciate what the, your reasons for wanting to go back and look at it again and again and again. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, we were all taught this, you know, capital asset pricing model. This, this, this is the theory, but, but, it, but it doesn't work, you know. Um, there are so many reasons why the base theory is wrong, and yet we still roll it out as perceived wisdom. 
The worst of it is it, it's not just the capital asset pricing model that it goes wrong. It, it leads into all the other models that we use. And banks have a horrible habit of using VAR as a measure of everything. And just to try and illustrate just how wrong you can be in a VAR model, um, these are a couple of the numbers that I produced um, where we've got two, 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 the Fortis, the Belgian insurance company, and obviously AIG, the, the global insurer who ended up owning the entire um, credit default swap market. But um, when they did the VAR numbers for their 2007 accounts, uh, year-end accounts, and, and these accounts were signed off by both PwC and Deloitte. So, and you also have to remember they were signing them off probably around March time, you know, so well into 2008. Now, they did all this modeling and said, well, obviously, the worst possible loss outcome here is, you know, $20 billion and, and, you know, at a, at a very, very high confidence level. The actual loss they subsequently suffered that year, in effectively in the ensuing nine months, five times as big, you know, I think it was about 27 zeros and a point naught three at the end. So, you know, the model got it very, very wrong. And there's a lot of, lot of models that will still say that the financial crisis, in theory, didn't exist. However, I'm pretty sure it did. But it's not just in um, financial issues. I mean, you know, I mean, here's a whole host of things where you know, models, uh, and I don't propose it, the slides will eventually be available. Um, but in so many areas, there is this total reliance on models and, you know, these are the future. We've got to believe on them. We're going to make our decisions based on models. You know, who, who would actually exercise judgment or intuition or actually think they're doing the right thing? No. The model says, and therefore we're okay. But how do you model any of this? You know, I mean, there are so many things that just don't naturally fit into a financial model, an investment model. How do you model diversity when choosing an equity stock? You know... How do you model the impact of financial media? You know, what about regulation, currency flows? You know, new changes in terms of you know, as personal aspirations, that sort of work-life balance. Um, the picture here was, obviously was of me on the beach a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I, I was on a cruise, put a bit, a bit of timber on since. Um, but uh, you know, I, thought, I thought I'd stick with the existing photo. You know. But none of that fits into a model. So it's not surprisingly that the model gets it wrong. And then if the model's getting it wrong, there is also the thing of, well, even if we could identify roughly where we want it to be, what about the choices? You know, I mean, again, the guys who are here, here before me, yeah, you know, each asked for their existing stock picks for next year. The reality is the best performing stocks over the next five years are probably companies that nobody's ever even heard of. These companies have probably not even been founded yet, and yet they will turn out to be the disruptors going forward. I mean, Google, I find, is absolutely fascinating. I've spent quite a lot of time with Google's artificial intelligence unit, and we started off just looking at how they were teaching computers to learn to play computer games. And, I mean, they started off with some fairly basic 80s games like the, the old traditional Space Invaders. And, and all they do is they tell the computer that there is a, a, a display of pixels, i.e. the score, and a certain display of pixels is better than another display of pixels. And that's, that's the only information the computer gets. And on game one, you know, you've got, you, you, you've got your nice sort of castle here. 
and the computer just sits there and gets blown up very, very, very quickly. You know. By game 100, the computer has thought that very occasionally it's quite a good idea to sort of stand behind the, the, the barrier and, and avoid it. By game 500, all the barriers are intact. Wave after wave after wave of aliens are shot. And more importantly, the computer has worked out that the, the, the one that comes across the top of the skein is not random at all and actually manages to shoot it when it's about, it got about half a millimetre of nose cone out at the top of the screen. Well, that was fairly simplistic. But then they said, well, we can do other things. And they, they demonstrated a similar learning pattern on a driving game. And then you suddenly realise that, again, by game 500, this computer was driving a car around a track without crashing, you know, far faster than any human could possibly react to. Their utopia in that was actually the game Go or Othello, um, you know, the idea with the, the, the black and white discs and that. And that has far, far more permutations than chess, which has previously been the sort of the gold standard for compute, computer artificial intelligence. And last summer, they actually cracked it. And now computers can play that again better than even the, the, the grandmasters in it. And so it was, it was, it was a nice thought process, and they, and, but they demonstrated the amount of research that was being thrown at it, the amount of computing power being thrown at it. And it was, well, what, 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 where are you going to take this? And they said, well, as of today, Google is probably, you know, on at least an accounting basis, an advertising company. That's where most of our revenues come from. In five years' time, we'll probably be a healthcare company, you know. And you think, oh, well, okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, but then you suddenly think, well, hang on. Google Glass. You know, is Google Glass designed to look stupid walking around Cape Town using it as a sort of a heads-up roadmap? No. What about Google Glass, though, being worn by a neurosurgeon or an orthopaedic surgeon? So they've actually got an overlay display of what it is they are operating on there and then. Suddenly, Google Glass becomes intuitively very obvious. And one company that we've actually literally just bought into is something called Cardia which is a, a, a company now which is going to put true ECG into um, Apple Watch bands um, such that you know, people will actually be able to get... It's been FDA approved. It's an, it is an accurate as a sort of having all the wires and everything coming out of you, which means that you know, people think they might have an onset of a heart attack. You, know, you, can, you can check them very quickly and you just realize they had too big a plate of nachos at uh, lunch. But on the other hand, what it's more designed to do is to pick up the fact that there's 150 kids die on college football fields every year in the US from undiagnosed heart attacks. We have a similar spate of teenage deaths in, in the UK, and I, I think you probably will have them everywhere else around the world, including South Africa. And the thing that's come out is that there is no such thing as a sudden heart attack. You will get symptoms 24 hours before and up to a month before. And if you were doing daily ECGs, you'd be able to pick this up. So, you know, if that company saves one life, it was an investment very, very well made. The trouble is with the pensions industry and the investment industry is, you know, we've got very, very comfortable. And, and despite the fact we've got huge pensions deficits and, and everything, there has been a degree of a lack of innovation, despite the fact that we were the ultimate owners of long-term capital. You know, we have a chance to change the future. Fortunately, that chance still exists. So we took the history and we, we, we looked at what everybody else was doing. And we saw the common, we, we put together a common fund to create this pool of assets. And we said, well, is there a way that we could just do things differently? 
can we sort of pretty much just get rid of the models because they, they're not really helping, they're not informing, you know, yes, I understand why somebody needs to appreciate risks, but they, the risks are involved are so much broader than the simple mathematical ones. What else could we do? And this was referred to before. This was, so our first view was, well, let's, let, let's look beyond the traditional benchmark allocation of the world. And some of you may have seen a variation of, of this before, but it was pretty much the perception that was being told to me by asset managers as to, you know, this, this is how you feel. US is wonderful. Who needs Trump? US is already great. Um, but there is this funny bit in the middle that nobody really quite knows what goes on about. You know, and you know, lots of areas you don't go for. You know, and so, so we thought, well, if, if, if people aren't going there, there's probably a really good reason to go there because actually there's a huge amount of opportunity. Because with globalization, with interconnectivity, this map of the world can't persist. You know, that actually the discussion on transformation is a rather a mute one, the same way the discussion on Brexit is a mute one. The world will move on beyond us and far faster than any of us can anticipate. And I just say, throw this as an example, and I'll just ask you to reset your intuitional thinking. The most flexible, innovative, and fastest moving space developer at the moment, it's not America, it's not Russia, it's not China, it's India. And, and India have put this, this rocket into space for certainly less than the cost than it took Hollywood to make the film Gravity. You know, they, they've done it for real. In terms of online shopping, you know, it's not Cyber Monday. Cyber Monday sales um, in the US last November were of the order of about three billion. Singles Day in China, 14 billion. And for those of you who don't know what Singles Day is, which you're actors, you probably do. You know, it's when nobody loves you and, and you go online and you buy yourself a present. You know? the, the, it was actually noted, interesting, at the, at the last OPEC summit that the swing producer on the oil, on the oil market now is not, 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 not Saudi. It's not whether Iran starts pumping barrels. The swing producer in oil now is the US. You know, they tried to kill the shale market. It didn't happen. And now they've, they, 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 you know, there's a much lower cost of extraction. And in terms of the sort of global powerhouse cities, you know, where, 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 where is the city of the future? This, this actually is a, is a true photo. You know, you think, oh, is it, you know, is it some sort of sci-fi world that's been made up? Is it some, you know, is it the latest shot of Dubai? No, this is Surat in India. This is where Microsoft is effectively building its sort of, you know, interconnected city. So you've got, you know, you've got cities in India. You've got cities like uh, Fushan in China. Um, you've got cities in Ghana. These are actually the true economic powerhouses of the world. Not Washington, not London not Moscow, and not, Be not Beijing. This is where the true growth is coming. So actually, if you're going to find these, these sources of return and get in on the ground floor, you're going to have to look very, very differently. You're also going to have to do things differently as well. Um, we actually have a very, very small team at Santander. Largely, this is driven by the fact that I just can't be bothered to do performance reviews. And 
Uh, and so we try and do everything as virtually as possible. And you know, we regularly partner with asset managers and the like. There are plenty of other funds with similar assets under management as us, and they have big in-house teams. And, and the justification they'll say is, well, you can do things at a lower cost, and also you get the interaction because your equity guy talks to the fixed income guy and, and that. And we say, well, yeah, we, we get that. Um, we negotiate very, very hard. You know, we, we, we certainly don't suffer on the fee front and the cost front. And in terms of the interaction, we've established a protocol with our asset managers that if somebody brings us an idea for a fund or a co-investment or something direct, that we will actually get another asset manager to come and have a look at it. And the other asset manager knows what we're not interested in them saying, oh, you don't, you don't want to do that. Um, we've got a, an excellent idea and you should look at that instead. That, that, that will get no credit at all. What we want them to do is get away from compliance, get away from their corporate branding, and go back to why they joined the industry in the first place, was to look at interesting innovations and in investments and say, how can I make this idea better? How can I execute it better? And our, our private equity managers who operate out of Chicago, a firm called WP, they, they operate a non-discretionary portfolio for us. And once we've agreed what the idea is, the thesis is, um, they will then go and execute it it for us, and again, we're a, a sort of basic charge. We also talk to other pension funds a lot. Um, this was probably the biggest eye-opener I had from moving from consulting into sort of eating my own cooking, was how much other pension funds talk to other pension funds. And, you know, we are happy to do things in a pooled concept, we seed stuff. Any real estate that we buy, we actually buy it into a unit trust structure, even if it might be a single asset and we're a single investor, because it allows us to ultimately syndicate or share that asset in the future. It also improves the, the sales price. And here's some of the examples of some of the things we do. Um, I mean, this, this the whole thesis of perhaps doing things differently and thinking differently was, was stimulated by this. And this is, this is a picture of the Manchester Arena. Uh, it's the third biggest indoor arena in the world. Oh, sorry, in, ticket, in terms of ticket sales, it's the biggest indoor arena in Europe for seating. It seats 21,000. And why did we buy this? Well, we started looking at this millennials generation who weren't actually worried about assets and buying a car, buying a house. What did they pay money for? Experiences. So actually, what was the true measure of inflation? Actually, when you see the rising cost of ticket sales and how much people are prepared to pay, how fast these things sell out, we thought, well, we can capture that growth by buying an arena, the operator of the arena, and then you actually get quite a lot of land with it. You get a car park, so we're thinking we can put a hotel on top of it. We've already put an electric go-kart track underneath it. Uh, so we can utilize the space more often. It, it's designed to actually be able to flood the main forum floor so you can have ice shows like the Disney show on. And it has excellent transport links. It abuts straight onto one of the Manchester stations. Great, also we can, we can unload six Pantechnic and lorries at, at a time on the, on the back of it. Still not enough when Lady, Lady Gaga comes to town. She brings 40. When I go there, I take 41 just as a point. But it, it was a sort of thinking differently about buying something differently. And this, this we actually bought in an off-market transaction of two private equity firms. One, at the, one was based in New York, one in Singapore. We agreed to deal with them very, very rapidly over the month of August to 
give sincerity, because pension funds have a very good reputation of jilting people at the altar, having talked a lot a good game. So when we actually exchanged, we put a 35% deposit in the vendor's solicitor's escrow account, and then we knocked 10% off the price. So we, we, we completed very well on that, and it's turned into a stunning investment. I referred very briefly to marinas, and I talked about being Ellen MacArthur's landlord. This, this came out of an idea where the then pensions minister, a guy called Steve Webb, said with these new pension reforms we were going to have in the UK, everyone was going to cash in their pensions pot and buy a Lamborghini. Not going to happen. Who wants a yellow car? I mean, <laughs> unless you're a New York cab driver. The, we didn't think they would do that. But if we did think if people did cash in their pension pots and they wanted a lifestyle change, they wanted to do something different, they do what they always do. People buy a yacht. And yachts have to be kept somewhere and maintained somewhere. And there's a lot of excitement in the UK at the moment about Ben Ainsley, the gold, gold, Olympic gold medal winner's bid for the America's Cup. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll buy something down in, uh, on the south coast. We bought four marines. And th this, this was a company that was actually built up over 30 years by two guys. One was in his 70s. He wanted to retire. The younger guy was in his 60s, couldn't afford to buy him out. So what we said was, what we'll do is we'll buy the whole operating business, we'll do a Propco Opco split out, we'll put CapEx into the, uh, the, the, the marina facilities, so we've extended the moorings so the Russian oligarchs can get their, their yachts in alongside. Um, we have much, much better shower facilities because that's what the Russian oligarch's wife wants uh, when she gets off land. You'd have thought it was a, a jewellery store, it's not, it's a shower. Who'd have thought? And, but also, more importantly, you know, we actually therefore allowed, paid off the older guy, and because we have a separate operating business, we retain the experience of, of the younger guy. Again, proving to be a very good investment. But we've done stuff all over the world. We, we, we joined a consortium to buy the Eurostar um, train, train service that runs from London to Brussels and Paris. Everybody knows about that. What people didn't really know was also that it runs a service down to the south of France in the summer and up to the mountains in the winter. And so the capacity for it to be you know, used a lot more was great. It also is hubbed in London, a station called St Pancras, and the there's been a whole huge development around that. And, and so that's, yeah, that's improved a lot. We've bought a gas pipeline business in, in Mexico, again, now taking that US gas over the border. We have 92% of the telephone masts in Nigeria, a company called IH Towers. Again, Nigeria, seventh biggest user of mobiles in the world, you know, bigger than Japan. We have a lot of ports and container businesses. We have a stake in the port in Mombasa. We have a lot around the UK. So we're looking all the time for physical business, businesses we can do with, and perhaps redefining slightly what infrastructure might be considered to be. And we get ideas from all sorts of places. We've done quite a lot in cybersecurity, and this was an idea that came to us actually from the CIA, and we now have the only truly encrypted um, enterprise and, and mobile handset solution. So, you know, we get ideas from more than just the normal places. The final bit I wanted to talk about was just how do you go about investing? And, you know, I, you know, you can have those choices, but one of the reasons we do a lot of private market stuff is it actually gets us away from the noise of public markets. And we find that, you know, even as a large fund, we have very little influence over large company stocks. However, if we own 20, 25% of a company, we usually have a board or board oversight seat, and we can influence the CEO directly. And that, that helps 
a lot in terms of making sure we get the right outcomes. So, I mean, that would be our version of impact investing. It's acting as a true NED, helping the, the company management to come to the right decision. And really, we, all of this comes down to say is, you know, we've tried to look at things differently to other people in the world and try and find opportunities which, you know, yes, they probably are undervalued today, but actually have genuine embedded value in them. Because actually, if that value is easy to unlock in the next two to three years, you'll have paid it away in the price or there'll be some overage provision. But something that's going to take seven to ten years and you genuinely have to roll up your sleeves and get involved in a company, apart from the satisfaction of, of doing things that possibly weren't in the actuarial exams, despite my best efforts, that actually, you know, you understand that this is, these are real companies doing real things and it gives you a much, much better insight into how com companies work and how to service them better. I mean, I'll give you one very, very quick example. We, we, we've looked at, we're currently looking at some, some stuff in agriculture at the moment around the world. We were outbid for a portfolio in the UK where the cost of land is about £10,000 per acre. Very, very expensive. Yes, it's long-term, but it's subject to all sorts of tax issues and that. There's not really much more we can do with it. So we actually started focusing on Australia and, uh, and South America. And we've now come up with this thing where somebody approached me in my office here in London and they came into the office with a laptop and sat me down at a desk and we started flying a drone over New South Wales. And at the other end of the drone, um, we found a natural boar. Um, we also found water. Uh, the boar's called Tony. And, and, you know, and, and, and what, we, but what we found in this site, which is enormous, um, was that actually it was very lim limited infrastructure. But it already had water and electricity. So it was actually very, very cheap to deal with a problem called lazy cows. And the lazy cow problem is that even if you've got 5,000 hectares of land, cows will never stroll more than about a kilometre and a half away from a source of water. So that most of your farmland is wasted, uh, unless you can distribute water to them. And as we said, the infrastructure was appalling. So we actually came up with this idea that, in fact, we put a series of sort of adjacent pie charts over the land. And what we, the intention is, is that you'll move the entire herd. So no longer are you bombing your herd of cattle by plane every couple of months. You just move them along every couple of days. And what they're doing is they're naturally digging up the land, they're naturally fertilizing it, um, so you're taking out a lot of your costs as an input costs, and you move them around the whole other thing. You're using far more of your, your site, and you're also improving the quality of the land every time they go around, and by the end of it, they end up in the sector just next to the slaughterhouse or the transport, so they, they, they move themselves along. Um, and, you know, and this is predicated on a demand for beef by the Indian and Chinese markets. They're not wanting a... Argentinian Wagyu beef, they just want beef and, you know, it works. So we put in 23 new water stations around here and use basically this single wire electric fence. You just get a couple of backpackers and a roll of wire and, and a jeep and they just go around and lay, lay, lay these out such that we get all these segments done. And in this very quick demonstration, you know, you know, as, as they like to demonstrate, Tony likes to call it, you know, the, the, they have these fantastic fences um, in, in Australia that are impermeable to knowledge. And, you know, and this is the, the difference between the two farms. Literally, you know, this is why he's put the water bottle in him. He is standing either side of the same fence. I mean, it shows how much more vegetation 
you can get, that clearly improves an uptick of yield. And we've seen a 50% improvement in yield and, and things. And then more importantly, we have happy cows at the end of it. And happy cows are profitable cows. And that's crucial. And more importantly, now what we found is that because of the rehabilitation, the Australian government are paying us more in terms of a carbon credit, which we'd never factored in, which is effectively covering the cost of putting the infrastructure in place. So we've seen this work successfully in Australia. We're now looking to see whether we can replicate it using sheep in Chile and, and transport the whole idea. So I just want to finish on that sort of, you know, it was a bit of a whistle-stop tour with what the Santander scheme has done and how we're doing it and will continue to do. But it really started from a pretext of the scheme was in a mess. It had operated for 30 years, still had a massive deficit, and if we'd always carried on doing what we were always going to do, it would stay in a mess, in a deficit. We had a chance to change it. We certainly had to sort of win the hearts and minds, as it were, of both the executive and the trustees. But actually, by thinking differently, and then once they started working, success as many friends, but thinking differently, and actually has allowed us to get into situations where we found it very, very rewarding as a career. We certainly feel that we're genuinely making best use of a pension fund as a long-term investor, but we've now set the pension fund on a path where we think we can generate sustainable returns over the next 15 years, which will more than double the sort of shortfall in the scheme and leave the scheme nicely self-sufficient. So thank you very much for your time. Happy to take questions. Uh, I hope you found that a little bit interesting. Thanks, Anthony. The floor is open for questions. Okay, you've spoken about, um, just briefly touched on Nigeria. Where, where else in, in Africa do you invest? Um, well, I mean, for all, all of you who are going to obviously rush out of here at 5.30 and nip round to Woolworths to go and buy your dinner tonight, um, one of the companies we have is Libstar, which actually supplies all the Woolworths' own label brands and in fact a number of the other supermarket chains there. I mean that throws up some other issues. I mean like I, was, I was out here in Joburg a month ago trying to work out where did we locate 70 million tons of halal chicken to supply McDonald's in Cape Town um, after we had a fire in our boiler plant in, in near Pretoria. Um, and that's, you know, we, we are, for those of you worried about McDonald's customers, we airlifted it in from Australia. So a happy, happy ending there. Um, but we, as I said, we touched on um, Kenya as well. Um, we've got the ports business there, and that's both supplying um, Kenya, but also Uganda, which, as it recovers from the post-Armin regime, it has an emerging middle class. This emerging middle class wants to eat bread. Uh, they have no natural grain. We supply it in. Uh, we're looking at some LTPG issues coming through the same ports business. Um, I touched on, yeah, Niger Nigeria with the, um, the telephone masts. And... I think we're just open to anything. I, you know, it's very, we, we just see it as a very, very simple thesis. You know, I, I couldn't tell you which company or which stock is going to do very, very well. But we see there's 12% of the global economy here in terms of population headcount. We've seen the shift in China you know, and how they, they've moved very rapidly. We think Africa is going to do the same. We think that eventually the Americans will get Africa and start investing here you know, in, in large amounts. But I think what changed it for us is we've become acutely sensitive to the first Africans that made a lot of money out of Africa. The first thing they did was move their money out of Africa. 
Um, the difference we're seeing now is that the people we're co-investing with are actually reinvesting back into Africa. And so there are lots of opportunities. And we very much see it as a, as a continent where all boats are going to float on a rising tide. Thank you very much. We've got another question here at the back. Uh, listening to you talking, it, it sounds wonderful, but I, I, I couldn't help thinking there are a thousand, um, perhaps 10,000, perhaps 100,000 challenges that you've overcome to get, get here. But just a, a, simple, uh, a simple thing, um, persuading all of those hidebound uh, investors, regulators, um, because what you've become, it seems to me, is an investment conglomerate. Um, which raises all sorts of challenging regulatory issues. How, how have you done that? Okay. Um, well, lots of, getting here was easy. came by Virgin. No, that, that, that wasn't a problem. Sorting out a dead laptop when I got here, that was a bigger challenge. So thank you to Andrew and the uh, Sandalam team for fixing that one. Otherwise, it would have been a very, very bland presentation. Um, the, the, the challenges um, were not insurmountable. If you started with the corporate culture at Santander, um, it had acquired all these banking businesses, it had never integrated things, so the first thing was actually just to get them to think of the pension fund as a business, you know, not a legacy HR issue. And that was part of the reason for putting up the 26 billion number, because at the time the bank was probably only had an economic value itself of around eight or nine billion. So, so it was a, there was a degree of shock and awe and scaring people. And once the bank board were bought into the idea that investing their way out was the only solution, we could then engage in a dialogue with the trustees. And, and, and the trustees' main concern had been one of a, a vacuum of non-communication. They didn't know what the company's strategy was. They knew they had a hole. They knew that the company had capital backing for the deficit. But what was anybody doing about it? And it, and it was, hasn't just been a, a, an, an asset problem. And we also restructured the liabilities. We've got about 4,000 active members in the scheme. We've got 65,000 deferreds and pensioners, most of whom never worked for Santander. They worked for one of the legacy organizations. So we actually put a cap on future pensionable salary increases within the DB arrangement. But actually, in the excess pay rise, we made that pensionable within a DC arrangement. So it was very easy to get union buy-in to say, well, actually, all pension is still pensionable. It's just not done under a DB arrangement. And what that allowed us to do was to reverse out the future in full inflation increases that have been modeled into to the scheme. Regulators, um, the reg regulators, if anything, they were slightly the easier because we, the whole time we were actually very, very transparent about what we were trying to do and how we're doing. And, and regulators' concern is usually one of lack of transparency. And, and we actually gave them our data if, when they were trying to set up their own modeling system of how banks were managing their arrangements. Um, and we helped them on every step of the way. And, you know, and we have regular dialogues with them. So that was good. I mean, I, I, my biggest challenge culturally was probably moving people inside of the organization because yeah, Santander is a Spanish bank that operates globally. It's not a global bank. And you either get the culture very quickly or you don't. So people either leave in the first eight to 12 months or they stay till retirement. And the people staying from retirement for, till retirement very quickly get into the two mindsets. One, don't upset anybody. You know, keep your head down. You know, you'll be fine. 
we certainly have no room for mavericks here. Um, and, and the second one is they're, they're a great way of flowing up. Uh, well, it sounds good, but we've always done it this way. And the, the, the we've always done it this way was, was quite a challenge to overcome. You know, and you would try, you take, took a while to sort of prove the illogicality in what we were doing here. The, the if you actually breached that one, they always had a further line of defense, which was, ah, oh, yeah, but Madrid says. You know, group is always a good excuse. You know, you know, I, I completely behind you. I get it entirely, but you know, there's somebody higher than me that uh, can can overturn it. So I actually, having actually got the CEO in the bank in, in the UK engaged, actually she and I took it right the way up to Group Exco to effectively overturn it and say, yeah, this actually the pension issue is probably the most significant financial risk that the bank faces. Not its mortgage book, not competition from new fintech companies, it's the pension scheme. And she was very clear, she said, look, if you don't give me discretion to manage the pension scheme, how am I supposed to manage the rest of the bank? And, and, and she got that discretion and won it over. I think the, you know, what would have been a big challenge would have been from the consultants advising the trustees. That was an easy one to resolve. We just sacked a lot of, lot of them. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that won a lot of friends with the CFO because we saved five million out of the cost base in year one. So, you know, that, you, you get rid of the, we got rid of a lot of naysayers. And then, you know, once we started to do things and we started to execute, then it actually became very, very easy. And what I hope came across a bit out of this was that most of our investments are predicated on stories. You know, we're not trying to bet one stock against another. We're not coming up with some very, very highly structured, leveraged, tax-dodging arrangement. You know, it's based on a fairly simple thesis, which we think is going to pay off. You know, that we see things like an aging population. We see global connectivity. We see this emerging consumer across the world. You know, we see people wanting certain, a return to certain values you know, we see people wanting different life, lifestyle choices, you know, and we're, we're anticipating that, you know, this, this is this consumer base that's going to drive the successful companies going forward. And we're just trying to get there slightly ahead of the rest of our peers. Thanks. This is unfortunately where we have to end it. Thank you very much, Anthony. It was very interesting. Thanks. Yeah.